We are continuing our walk through the letter, the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. And yes, 1 Corinthians is a letter. And as we learned last week in our very first sort of sermon into this text, all letters have introductions. And last week we studied Paul's introduction of his letter to this church in Corinth, this messy church of men and women. With some scandalous pasts and presents. And yet he identifies them as saints, as holy ones set apart in Christ. And so we learned that we are all to be anchored down into our true identity as in Christ, as holy, as saint. This morning, what he's going to do is he's going to anchor us into something else. Our unity in Christ. And so let's just take a look at the text this morning. I'll read it. Please follow along. We'll pray and then we'll dig in and see what God has for us this morning. This is God's word. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. You see, this is a letter. He's he's doing a, a little aside here for us. He says, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak for your servants are listening. Where the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. Holy Spirit, you have the power to melt our hearts so that we can be receptive to your word. Not just hear information and cogitate, but that we would actually be transformed by the person of Jesus and his word. This is our prayer and we ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, past fall, I joined many of you guys out here on um, our second annual Men's Adventure Weekend. Okay, so this was a great weekend where uh, once a year, men from our church like to head out to the New River Gorge in West Virginia. And we do things like rafting. We do things like climbing and rappelling. And all those things are appropriate to the name adventure, right? All of those things were and are adventurous. But for some, the most adventurous part of this past weekend that we went on was sleeping (laughs) in a tent while it was raining, amen? Both nights. (laughs) 
Now, I shared a tent with the team leader, uh, Joe, the most seasoned camper I know. And so when I woke up after a night of cold rain, I was gloriously dry. And in fact, I was saying to others around the fire that morning, man, that was just like having a sound machine on. That was awesome, wasn't it? Meanwhile, everybody else around breakfast at the fire were like taking their clothes and their shoes next to the fire because they were soaking wet. Uh, One person said, yeah, I basically slept in a puddle, a pool of like 38 degree water all night. Why didn't you get out? I don't know. This is camping. This is the adventure weekend, right? (laughs) I learned a crucial lesson that weekend. Check the seams of your tent. Okay, Check the seams of your tent. Even the smallest crack can tear uh, or tear can basically ruin your weekend. Now, why do I say that? Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, came into the ancient city of Corinth around 49 B.C. You're thinking, what on earth does that have to do with Men's Adventure Weekend? Well, let me continue here. Uh, As he walked into this ancient city for the first time, this is probably the road in which he walked. Okay, so he's walking towards Corinth. And as you walk down this road, at this time in 49 B.C., there would be shops. Imagine like a farmer's market. There's a stall right there on that road. And so there would be shops, and these shops would be filled with merchants, and these roads would be packed shoulder to shoulder with people. Why? Because every other year there was what was called the Isthmian Games. It was second only to the Summer Games, the Olympics that we all know of. And so tourists were here. To see the games. And they didn't have Airbnb. They didn't have hotels. So what were they doing? A lot of them were buying food and tents from these kinds of stalls in order to sleep while they were at the games. One of the best tent makers in Corinth was this power couple by the name of Prisca and Aquila. They were this power couple that that encountered uh, the gospel, became followers of Jesus, were kicked out of Rome, landed in Corinth, and started selling tents. They were master craftspeople of tents, leather tents and other leather goods. And so when Paul walks down that street that I just showed you and sees these people selling these tents, he encounters Prisca and Aquila. And because they were already followers of Jesus and Paul was there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, they connected and they became great friends. I mean, they became such great friends that Paul started calling Prisca Priscilla, which would be like you calling me Joey. And let me just say, there's only a few people who call me Joey, okay? That takes a lot of time spent together before you get to call me Joey. Like, you know, like new kids on the block or whatever. (laughs) Aging myself. So I want you to picture the Apostle Paul spending most of his days crafting the world's highest quality tents. He was an artisan. And when he wasn't making leather tents, he was planting churches. In fact, in Corinth, the way that he made his money was selling his incredible tents. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul would use imagery from his artisan 
tent work in his letters. Which is exactly what he does in our passage this morning. He writes in verse 11, if you take a look down again. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. So, in verse 10, before that, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. He's borrowing in that verse tent imagery. He's saying, let there be no tares among you, but instead be united. And that word united in the Greek is katartizo, which is to fit together, which was the word that a tent maker would use when thinking about his seam work. He's saying, be fit together in such a way that you don't sleep in 38 degree water all night. Be fit together, not ripped. The fabric of this church community was ripping. It wasn't completely ripped in two because he addresses the church as one community, as one body in verse two, if you take a look, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, So it hasn't ripped into two pieces, but it had little tears that Paul compared to a poorly made tent. that didn't have good seams. And people were getting miserably wet. We know what this is like in all the communities we're a part of. Anybody who has played on a sports team knows that even though there's one coach, one jersey, one playbook, a team can have little tears in it Little, little clicks in it that mess up the entire performance of the team. If you squint your eyes, you're like, that is one unified team. They all look the same. They all have the same coach. But if you're in the locker room, you know that there is something going on. I grew up playing tennis. We didn't have a locker room. <laughs> but my coach, he knew that clicks, clicks inside the team was the worst thing that could happen to us. Uh, During the World Cup, if you watched the World Cup this past summer, we didn't have uh, the United States playing, so maybe you didn't watch it. But if you did watch it, you're a true football soccer fan. And uh, you remember Germany uh, Germany sort of fell out. They were were horrible, even though they're loaded with some of the most world's best players, including their goalie, Manuel Neuer. Now, Manuel Neuer said to the press, our locker room is a mess. It's divided. And they were knocked out. Or think about your job. Think about uh, your job. If you work for a corporation or any kind, even a small business, you all have the same boss, the same payroll, the same vision, the same mission. But there is what we all know and call office politics. Do you know about office politics? Anybody? Anybody know about this? Because I can just move on if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, I, I saw this in the Harvard Business Review. Recently, they ranked different levels of politics that we all deal with in our workplace. And the first that they offer is what they call healthy office politics. I'm quoting now. In minimally political companies, what you see is largely what you get. Standards for promotions and expectations for managing and leading are made clear. 
Wouldn't that be great, right? If that's where you worked. Number two, unhealthy office politics. In-groups and out-groups are usually well-defined. Amen? You know about this? In-groups and out-groups are usually well-defined. One organization where I consulted was highly political, she writes. Cliques had formed. People slipped into each other's offices before meetings to share the latest defense of the out-group and to plan their revenge. Who's been there? Amen? Anybody? And then there's level three. Okay, This is what they call pathological office politics. I wonder if you can relate. Daily interaction is fractious. Nearly every goal is achieved by going around people or formal procedures. People distrust each other and for good reason. Out of necessity, people spend a good deal of time watching their backs and far less gets done than might otherwise be achieved. Many of you are working in a pathological office space. All of our teams and sports, if our organizations, our corporations can be torn. What about the church? Surely not the church, right? The church, the church is off limits. We don't have pathological politics. There's no way, right? Well, the church can be the worst. It can be the worst. Oftentimes it's the worst because it's cloaked in sort of religious veneer. But it can happen. In fact, the word used by Paul in verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling. That word quarreling in the Greek, Eris, was the Greek god of battle. I mean, office politics were ripping this church apart. We tend to think of the early church as utopian, as sort of the best the church ever was or will be. Well, this is an early church. And the only word that Paul can think of to describe what's happening is the Greek god of battle. That's what's happening. And in fact, Paul is going to address this particular issue for the next four chapters, so buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be his main issue. But in verse 12 this morning, what we just read, Paul sets the stage by explaining the problem in greater focus. He says in verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, quote, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Here, in these verses, we see two things that are tearing the tent apart. Individualism and what we'll call tribalism. Let's just look at individualism first. Individualism rips the church apart. Notice Paul says, each one of you says, I follow. Each one of you says, I follow. And then compare that with verse 10. I appeal to you all, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you all, but that you all be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So individualism characterized this church. And Paul is, by contrast, saying you all, you all. He's reminding them that they are not just individuals. Now let me just say something real quick. Being an individual is a good thing. And having an individual relationship with Jesus is an essential thing. 
But when your individuality becomes everything, when, when you start to think only in terms of me, you have individualism. And that will rip the church apart. Nothing will rip the church apart quicker than individualism. We like to say this at at Hope a lot. When you drive home from church, the question we ought to be saying to each other, or if you're driving alone, the question you ought to be saying to yourself is not what did I get out of church, but how did I bless someone else? And that is exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, stop thinking entirely about you and start thinking about you all. But number two, tribalism rips the church apart. Tribalism. It's an equal and opposite error. So tribalism in the church is when your identity is rooted in any loyalty that isn't Jesus. When your group identity is anchored down into anything, ultimately, that isn't Jesus. Does it mean you don't have affinities? Of course not. Does it mean that you don't have other, other things that unite you? Of course not. But when it's your ultimate grounding identity as a group, and it's not Jesus, you have a tribalism. You see, in verse 12, we see that there were Christians defining themselves by their loyalty to a specific teacher. Even a teacher who points them to Jesus. Which makes it, of course, more dangerous. And why were they doing that? Well, it makes sense if you kind of, as we've been learning the context of Corinth, we kind of understand that Corinth was a celebrity culture. And so this kind of makes sense in the celebrity culture. There were these people, they called themselves sophists, and they would, walk, they would wander around from city to city, much like bands do today when they perform, right? They, they sort of set up a gig and they play in a city, then they drive on to the next city, or like comedians would do today. Well, sophists would go from city to city, and they would impress others with their speech, and then they would gain followers. And people would say, well, I follow this sophist teacher. I follow this sophist teacher. And the culture was so eager to sort of attach their identity to an impressive individual that it is no doubt that was happening in the church. Of course it was happening in the church. And this may sound like I'm talking about America today, but I'm talking about Corinth back then, 2,000 years ago. Even good, solid Bible teachers were being treated like celebrities. In that, the Christians were basing their group identity not on Jesus, who they were proclaiming, but on the teacher themselves. People with the most followers were at the top. And so they were just looking around at their favorite Christian leaders in this church even, among this one community, and picking their favorite. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. So celebrity culture was informing this decision. I also think that Corinth was a diverse city. It was very diverse in terms of ethnicity. So Corinth was a travel hub, remember? It was where north went to the south. It's where south went to the north. It's where east went to the west. It's where west went to the east. It was the, like, sort of, you know, like an hourglass. It was that little place where the sand drops through. That was exactly what Corinth was in the ancient context. What that meant then was that it was incredibly diverse. There were major cultures colliding in this city, this small city. 
Um, and as Kenneth Bailey points out, the melting pot idea wasn't really a thing back then. There wasn't this sort of deep appreciation for diversity. Uh, instead, it often was fractious, as it still is today. And so Romans, Greeks, and Jewish men and women, these kind of three major cultures, uh, start following Jesus. Romans, Greeks, and Jewish men and women. And one of the biggest problems they faced was how to be unified as Jesus followers. And so think about this for a second. Paul is a Roman citizen. Think about this. Apollos is Greek. Peter, his Jewish name is Cephas. It doesn't take much imagination to see what's happening here. Believers within the ancient church here were claiming Paul. Roman Christians were claiming Paul because he was Roman. Greek Christians claimed Apollos. And Jewish Christians were claiming Cephas. And then there's Christ followers, right? They weren't really, uh, you know, they weren't really being Christ-centered. We might, this is, this is not really a, a sort of affirmation from Paul, okay? What we can, we don't know for certain, but what we can think is they were sort of like how today we say, I'm a gospel Christian, I'm a gospel-centered Christian, right? It's a designation that sort of puts you above. It's like, I'm a little bit holier than you. I'm a Christ follower. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a biblical Christian. I'm sorry. That's just who I am. They were all tribal in their loyalties. I love this quote from Jonathan Haidt. I'll put it behind me. He says, We love tribal living so much that we invented sports, fraternities, street gangs, fan clubs, and tattoos. <laughs> Tribalism is in our hearts and minds. And so it should be no surprise that it shows up in the church. Let's have our eyes opened, okay? Let's not be naive. Whenever our unity, though, our ultimate foundational unity is anchored down and based on anything other than Jesus, it will tear the church apart. Tribalism plays out in a couple ways in our lives right now, I think. I think it plays out in cyberspace and in church space. We'll, we'll, we'll play it out that way. So in spy, cyberspace, okay, we choose our favorite preachers or favorite authors. We follow them on Twitter. We see who they're following. Have you ever done this before? I've done this before. I do this all the time. Who are they following? Because I want to follow who they're following. We get mad at the things they get mad at. We get upset about the things they get upset about. We praise the things they praise. We define everybody else as other or outsider. And if you just were to look at everybody I follow on Twitter, I think I'm getting better, but at least three or two years ago, everybody looked the same. They all held the same views. They all had the same perspective. I mean, this is the American church echo chamber that we can live in. Choose your follower, choose your leader, and follow that leader. And soon you forget about Jesus. And you're locked into a subculture. It's like cults in action. I mean, a cult is alive and well in the Christian church. 
That's what it is. All right, that's cyberspace. I think in church space, I think what can happen is we connect and we click with folks in the church that resonate with us more. Reson- like, who resonates with me more? And this can happen even with leaders, right? It, we're we're a, a church that has multiple leaders. And so some of us can be like, I resonate with this leader. I resonate with that leader. I just personally relate better to this leader. And suddenly you start to have clicks within the church, following different leaders even within the church. Or different cultures, or different backgrounds, different ethnicities, we can st- sort of we can sort of connect, and and then all of a sudden we are divided in a way that Paul would describe us as divided, not torn apart in half, but there's 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 things going on which is not okay. We isolate ourselves from others, and at worst we exclude others from our circle, whether we know we're doing it or not. We define the terms of our clique according to our own terms, and then we say, for you to be in my clique, you must change to how I am. And this can happen inside the walls of a church this size. It can happen inside the walls of a denomination. It can happen inside the walls of the American church, for sure. Well, Paul is going to lay two pieces of dynamite next to individualism and tribalism. He points them to two things in their story. Two visceral physical things. The cross and their baptism. Do you see it? Do you see it? Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Paul is asking them, are you putting a human leader in the place of Jesus and looking to them for your salvation? He's basically saying, remember, you are all, all of you, crucified with Christ. That's your core identity as a church. You're not crucified with Paul or Cephas or Johak or whoever your pastor is or whoever your favorite leader is on, on your podcast. That's not who you're crucified with. Are you kidding me? You're crucified with Jesus. That's your core identity. Paul says this to the Ephesian church in chapter 2. I'll put it behind me. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, which is not just absence of conflict, but is actually sort of interdependency like we have never experienced. Interdependency. One pastor, he compares peace and the Hebrew concept of peace, which was shalom, as sort of all the fabrics in a beautiful tapestry. And has anybody, I remember the kids did like uh, quilt making, right? Is that right? Did, did y'all make quilts? Or what was it? It was weaving. weaving. Thank you. Weaving. Okay. Weaving. Do you remember? Okay. So do you remember the weaving? What happened when you were weaving? You were taking all these multiple threads, right? You were bringing them together and you were bringing them really tightly and interdependently, right? Like this. And then it made something quite beautiful, correct? That is the Hebrew concept of peace or shalom. It's not just, hey, we're not fighting. It's actually like, no, very different people, different backgrounds, different preferences, different cultures, different ethnicities, different skin color, different everything, food preferences, cuisine, all of it. It's it's, it's all of these things being woven together as Christ intended us to be woven together. That is peace. And Paul says that in this letter. To, to the Ephesians. He says, For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
He has unified the tent that is leaking. We are all crucified in Christ. We are not crucified in whatever leader we like. Eric Redman, he writes, It should be said at this point that I do not think there is anything wrong with having friends that enjoy the same types of things as you do. However, as a Christian, we should never unite on the basis of anything above the gospel, and we should not exclude people or isolate ourselves from people who love and cherish the same Christ. To put it another way, I have to ask myself if the basis for my friendships and relationships are earthly or eternal. The cross is the only thing that can unify people that would otherwise be divided. Because the cross tells us that we are equally in need of grace and that we are equally loved by Jesus. And therefore, we all have now the same loyalty. So he brings them to the cross. The second thing he really draws them to is our baptism. Paul's a good communicator. He's like, you're not going to remember anything that you hear read aloud when this letter was read aloud to the church, which they were back then. That's how it worked. You're not going to remember much, but you will remember cross and you will remember the waters of your baptism. And that will remind you of the unity that you have because it was tempting in their day and in our day too to find our safety in other powerful and influential people. Um, it was a patron-client culture. You know what that means? It was a patron-client culture. And so you found patrons, people who had wealth and influence and power, and you tried to connect yourself to that person. You became like a roadie to that person, basically. And you and you did services for them. And you became their client. And they were your patron. And they, they responded by giving you things in return. And so when you are living in a culture, a patron-client culture, and when most of the, according to Corinthians, most of the new believers here did not have power or influence. They were unlovely in the eyes of Corinth. A lot of these Christians were sort of trying to find their safety in powerful and influential people. So, of course, they're like, okay, Jesus is fine. Let's get to Apollos. He is an incredible preacher. Have you heard him preach? You should hear his sermon on 1 Corinthians. Chapter, wait, he wouldn't preach 1 Corinthians at that time. But you should hear him preach. He is an incredibly anointed preacher. I'm an Apollos guy. Oh, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm a Cephas girl. I like how he really connects the gospel to the Old Testament. I think he's really grounded in sort of, you know, the the real root of the system, you know. I like Paul, you know, Paul's my guy. This is what they were doing. Plutarch, he writes that most people in that culture were like ivy, winding themselves around powerful and influential people. And this is what was happening in church. So that Paul says, remember your baptism. He actually says, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you because you were probably start, you know, following me. But you were baptized in Christ, just like you were crucified with Christ. You were baptized in Christ. He is your ultimate allegiance. You were baptized in the name of Jesus, not some other person. OK, individualism and tribalism, they tear apart 
the church in subtle ways, and only Jesus can mend it. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we'll close with this image because Jesus doesn't want just to create, even in our church, a sort of uniform military school. When he talks about unity, like in verse 10, for instance, when he says that you all agree and that there be no divisions, he's actually saying, I I desire that you all say the same thing. He's not saying, I desire you all look the same way. Or that you all sort of, uh, sort of do away with all of your unique contributions and stories and cultures. Instead, he says, no, come together in a beautiful diversity, though unified in Jesus. Uh, Wendell Berry, one of my favorite writers, he talks about his military school upbringing. And how he really... Um, tried to rebel against it but he calls it sort of a deadening uniformity and I think sometimes we think of that when we think of uh, what the Bible says about unity okay we need to be united in a sort of dead uniformity you know what was a dead uniformity people saying "I I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul, like that's a deadening uniformity. What is a beautiful sort of diversity is when different people with different cultures and different preferences come together under Christ. The word that Anthony Thistleton uses that he says that Paul is after is polyphonic harmony. Some of my favorite albums are my favorite because they have harmony. You ever notice this? Like you have that singer-songwriter thing and they're playing and you, and you like them, they're good, they have that unique voice which sets them apart from every other person singing in a coffee shop, right? They have that unique voice. But then there's these albums that have the same thing going on but there's harmony. And what is even better than harmony between two people is when they're like brothers or sisters. You know what I mean? So, so the Avid brothers, for instance, they have very different voices. Amen. Do you know what I'm saying? Like their voices, when they sing separately, you're like, how are they brothers? But then when they sing together, it's this beautiful thing. There's something absolutely uh, good and right and true and beautiful about harmony, even singing harmony in the church, because it points to the image of unity that Paul is after here. Polyphonic harmony. So let me just ask you, what is your ultimate loyalty this morning? Is it to Jesus or a powerful leader? Even if they point you to Jesus. Be honest. Are you isolating yourself from others who are not like you? Are you rejecting others? think we can all take heart in the reality of the cross, the reality of our baptism. Church politics die at those two places. And only those two places. There's actually no other place that the tears that Paul is talking about can be mended. Actually, that is the only place that can be mended. Cross and the waters of baptism. That's it. That's it. And so let's go there. Let's go there together. Jesus, we would ask that you would draw us to these places time and time again, open our eyes, create repentance in our hearts. 
build up in this small place, but also your church, a unity that does not downplay difference, but rejoices in it. When dominant cultures submit to non-dominant cultures in Christ. When personalities no longer reign as tyrants in your church. Would you, Jesus, be our ruler and our Lord and our Savior?